question if you would read the answer with me. What benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? At death, the souls of believers remain perfect in holiness and immediately pass into glory. Their bodies rest in their graves till the resurrection. And our uh, passage is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. And um, it was such a wonderful, um, hopefully y'all were blessed by, by Ubi and Jim coming to preach to us. And uh, Kale and Ubi are great friends of our church. Uh, let's let you know, like, you've probably not met these people, but there's a lot of people that are praying for the Neighbor Fellowship Church that are very encouraged about what's happening here. And that's not a product, or that's not because of, me or Dick or Sean or Robert or any of us, it's because of God and Christ Jesus. It's his church, not our church. We're just servants of the church. And so I just wanted to let you know that those are two friends of ours, and that, and hopefully um, they will be guest preachers um, in the future as well. And, um, so uh, thank you so much for your kindness. Um, Ubi was telling me this week how kind, how you got kind words from many of y'all. Uh, it was very encouraging, and he encouraged me as well. So um our passage is in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and um, I'm just going to read uh, the first eight verses, and then we are going to dive into all 22. For everything there is a season, and a time for every manner under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones. A time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to seek and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to tear and a time to sow. A time to keep silent. A time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. Verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toils? Dear Lord, I pray, Lord, as we enter into this chapter of Scripture, this word, this, this message, this, this text, this chapter is inspired by you. Sometimes it's hard to Realize that and believe that, Lord, but this passage here that we're going to be teaching from is your word, and I pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts and our minds, that you would lead us to places of, of maturity and understanding, Lord. Lord, if there is sin in our lives that are brought up through this passage, Lord, I pray that we would confess those sins and trust in Christ's work on the cross. If there's, if there's anyone in here who is not a follower of Christ, May after the hearing of your word and the teaching of your word, that you would lead them by your spirit to faith and trust in Christ. Lord, we pray for friends and families of ours who are struggling or dealing with illnesses. And when I pray for them, I pray for relationships, Lord, that need to be mended and need to be reconciled. I pray, Lord, that those relationships be reconciled through your will, through your power, Lord, and your grace. We pray for friends of ours who have family members that are dying with cancer. Pray, Lord, that you would give, if salvation is lacking in the one who is sick, Lord, that you would save them. If, there, if, if faith is lacking in our friends who are struggling with a family member who's dying, Lord, may you give them faith and trust in you. 
Lord, we pray for Redeemer Fellowship Church, Lord. We pray for what's happening right now in conversations with St. Mark's about purchasing this building. We have me and Denton and Stan have a meeting on Tuesday with them, Lord. I pray, Lord, that that would be a very productive conversation, Lord. I pray, Lord, that your will will be done in that conversation. Lord, I pray, Lord, that um, and it is your will for us to purchase this building at the price that we can purchase it, Lord, and may you make that happen. May we trust, Lord, in your power and your grace in that situation. May we not trust in our own persuasion or our own uh, strategies or methods, Lord, but we only trust in you. May we pray and rest in you, Lord, alone. In Jesus' name, amen. So I have titled this sermon that may be inappropriate, so I'm going to change the title a little bit. We don't even have it on the screen, but uh, I want to talk about referees in sports a little bit. So the title is Refs, You Are Blind, You Stink. And the reason why I want to talk about referees, because referees, especially in basketball of all sports, it seems that the referees and the players and the coaches are so at odds with one another. Um, recently, there was a podcast by Michael Lewis who wrote uh, Moneyball and, Ditch, and um, um, it was, uh, I can't remember the other book that he wrote, but he's a, a pretty popular author. Um, and uh, The Big Short, I'm sorry, he wrote The Big Short, which is a, a movie that came out a few years ago. Um, but he, in this podcast, he talks with his son, he's a, he's a young, he played basketball, talking about refs, and the son says, he said, refs, don't pick sides unless it's my side. Basically saying, like, if you're going to call a foul, call a foul on the other team, not on me. And, 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 and so if you're going to call fouls, make sure you don't call it on my team, call it on the other team. And there's this sense uh, with, let's say players that are really good, like superstars like LeBron James and, and, and others who are kind of the superstars of the NBA, there's a tendency that there's been noticing that they tend to complain more and more about foul calls by the referees. There's a sense where they have a sense of entitlement that they're the best players, so therefore they should get the best call. And, it's, and even uh, uh, Steve Kerr was in this podcast, he was interviewed, he was the coach for the Golden State Warriors, and he talks about how the words in the, that he, the words that he uses to talk to referees, he would never use in common conversations with, with normal people. As if there's this sense in, in the kind of in the, in the field of, of competition where people always have this sense that the rules are against them. And, and so they, they need to cry out, they need to complain, they need to grumble that the rules don't, shouldn't apply to them, the rules should only apply to the other side. And so, there's this, especially within sports, sports is a great metaphor for the human life, right? I don't know, some of you don't watch sports, you may not understand the depth of that, maybe that's too deep for you when it comes to sports, but sports really is a, a kind of a metaphor for the human life. And especially the interaction, again, with players and the referees, this sense of the unfairness of the rules, that the rules are unfair. The rules are being enforced in an unfair way. And I think that's really what's going on here in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, that the, the author of, and I'm going to call him the teacher, because the term that is used there, the preacher, the teacher, is one that, with a Hebrew word for uh, assemble, someone who assembles people together. So the word that we get, church, comes from the word that is used here in Ecclesiastes, that he is a preacher, a teacher, one who brings people together and has something to say. And 
And I think for a lot of us, we actually do preaching in our daily lives. You may think that only 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 people in church, the, the pastor does the preaching, but if any of y'all use Facebook as a soapbox to express your opinion, you're literally, you are preaching. You're proclaiming your opinion. You're proclaiming a word of wisdom. And that's really what's going on here, that this guy has an issue. He has a word he wants to proclaim or say or to teach to a group of people, and this is what's on his heart and mind. And if you've read this book from cover to cover, you realize that it's really a word of complaint, a word of grumbling, a word of the, the rules aren't fair. The rules aren't fair. And for some of you who are maybe disgusted that I didn't read the whole chapter, I will read the whole chapter eventually, and so bear with me here. But uh, I did like how Ubi last week um, started off with Paul. He talked about uh, Paul in Romans, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I think that's a really good place to start to help you understand that that how this book actually fits into the entire context of God's word. And so if you have a Bible and you're in, you have your finger in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, if you just kind of sc scroll over to Romans chapter 8, and I'm going to read uh, just a few verses here in Romans chapter 8, uh, starting in verse 19. We preached on this chapter a few months ago. So this is Paul saying, For the creation waits with ear longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know the whole creation has been growing together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have, the, who, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in hope, for in this hope we were saved, that now hope that is seen is not hope, but who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. I read that because I want us to understand that this is kind of a big theme of this chapter, not this whole book. That without God, without God's word, there is no hope. And creation, we ourselves, will always groan and complain without any sense of hope. And God's word is, is communicating to us in, in a fallen world who also have a sinful nature that we have hope in Christ Jesus. So again, I want you to, to, to take this chapter, chapter 3 Ecclesiastes, and, and try to imagine a neighbor, a friend, a family member, uh, a co-worker, and put these words in their mouth. Try to remove who is the writer, is it King Solomon, who is this? I don't think that's actually all that important. But try to think and put these words, Ecclesiastes 3, in the mouth of someone that you know. Someone that you're communicating Christ with. Maybe it's a stranger. I know that Connor and Stan had a conversation this week with a stranger at their door about God's word. So put these words in that person's mouth. It will help you in understanding where this chapter is coming from. This is a blog post by someone who has also observed everything under the sun. He or she has observed that all is vanity, wealth, wisdom, pleasure, toil. They're all chasing after the wind. The first point, verses three, uh, chapter 3, 1 through 8, is a series of unfortunate events. A 
series of unfortunate events. So what does the writer say here? Starts off saying, verse 1 of chapter 3, For everything there is a season and a time for any matter under heaven. Kind of reminds you, remind you of, the, of, the, of the, the song by the birds. Turn, turn, there is a season, turn, turn. Very similar poetry and language that is mentioned here in verse 2 through 8. And, and, and there's this orderness of God, right? I mean, when you read this, you, your first thought is, wow, look at the order of God. How wonderful is his creation that there's an order to it, right? What a wonderful universe that God has created that there's such an order to it. Yes, God does create everything in the season. Yes, there's a time for every matter under heaven. How wonderful. He even uses the word under heaven, not under the sun, right? For, since chapter 1 to chapter two, 1 and chapter 2, he's used the under the sun phrase over and over again. But now he inputs under the heaven. God is the Lord of time. He is the source of every matter. He is the one with authority. He is the one who makes sure everything happens in its season. And the writer gives credit to God for this. You think the teacher, the preacher, is changing his tone, right? Maybe he's found an optimistic perspective because the poem is quite beautiful, isn't it? He's used, it's used in funerals. This, this passage is used in funerals today. Yet there are the words of a frustrated soul. He is frustrated with God, the Lord of time and space, the Lord of order, the Lord of creation. Uh, a commentary by Frederick Carl Ilsons, he titles this chapter, Hopelessness of Struggle Against an Arbitrary God. That's how he titles this. So if you read this passage and end it at chapter 8, you think that this is a beautiful, optimistic perspective on life. Should be wrong. Sure, he, we look and we see the scope of God's sovereignty, his governance. Don't be scared of the word sovereignty. We're thinking of governance, that God governs all things. He's the Lord over all things. And then what the writer presents in 2 through 8 is a, is a Hebrew word for Miriam. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a Hebrew po a poetic structure. And what a Miriam is, it, it, it basically presents two polar opposites to represent the whole. So when he says a time to be born and a time to die, he uses two polar opposites to basically to actually present a, a holistic or universal truth. A time to be born and a time to die and everything in between. The teacher leaves nothing hidden. He's quite comprehensive in his list of God's sovereignty. He includes most, if not all, of the human experience. The list is not prescripted, as if the teacher is telling us to do something in particular, right? You don't read this passage and go, okay, there's a time to kill. So that means I need to figure out what time it is to kill, and I need to kill. That's not the, the, the interpretation of this passage. It's not prescripted. It's not telling you what to do. It's describing the human life. The list is descriptive. It tells us everything that happens in life. Phil Reichen wrote in his commentary on Ecclesiastes, which is entitled, Why Everything Matters. He said, God rules all our moments and all our days, and there is a definite orderliness to what he does. He is sovereign. Has a, his sovereignty has a chronology. Has chronology. In, the, in divine economy, there is a season for everything, a suitable occasion or appropriate opportunity for everything that happens. 
There is a time to particulate, which is to enter into a school. There's a time to graduate, a time to take a job, and a time to retire, a time to stay, to say, and a time to go home. Yet all of these things are divine action. I mean, the writer is not saying that God doesn't exist or God's not involved in creation. Actually, he's saying the opposite. He's saying that everything under the heaven is a divine action. So he says is there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted. He's basically presenting the life cycle, right? He's including all creatures that breathe and all plants in life cycles. So there's a time of birth and a time of death. There's a time of planting and a time of harvest. Well, not harvesting, but death. Plucking out what is planted. Job 14.5, this is Job saying, a, a person's days are determined and the numbers of his month are with God. God is sovereign over our days. James 4, 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go in such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. The Lord is sovereign. He is in control. The author, the writer, the teacher, the preacher has no problems with that. He agrees the Lord does everything in this time, and we are at his mercy. There's time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up. Uh, when I was in Singapore, uh, I didn't in the team at all on home, and so we were spending time with my family, and I was sitting, it was in the morning, I believe, and I was sitting with my dad, he was working on something for FedEx, and I was reading the Wall Street Journal on my phone, and I noticed something that I thought was interesting. Uh, I found out an article, it was like a one little sentence that said that FedEx employees would not be getting their bonuses that year. And I said, Dad, do you realize that? He goes, yes. He kind of like, you could see, like, he was just kind of like, yeah, I lost a lot of money on that one. And I was like, that's interesting that uh, that was in a Wall Street Journal article that employees will not be getting their bonuses for the 2019 year. And you think about that. That's not my dad's fault, right? He did nothing to deserve not getting his bonus, right? It's not like they called him in particular and said, by the way, Tony, because of your work ethic or because of this and that, you will not be getting your bonus this year. No, no, it is a, every employee of FedEx that gets an annual bonus did not receive, even the CEO, Fred Smith, was not getting a bonus that year. It's a time to build up and a time to break down. Nothing my dad could have done to prevent the decision. He lost money because of variables outside his control, right? It's a time to build up and a time to break down. Sometimes some nations are at peace and other times nations are at war. This week alone, tensions between the U.S. and Iran have increased due to blame by the U.S. of six attacks on foreign commercial ships by the Iranians on oil tankers in the region. America then sent a thousand troops to the Middle East. Iran responded by shooting down an American unmanned drone. President Trump, as of Friday, planned to respond militarily by attacking Iran, yet refrained at the last minute. A time for war and a time for peace, right? There is a time for every season. Even though the world thinks that everything happens in this every moment in time type of decision that President Trump decides one thing, the Iranians decide another, but God is in control of all these things. The time of war, the time of peace. You can't stop death. For everything there's a season, a time for every matter under heaven, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. You can't prevent crops from dying at times, right? Sometimes they just die. Certain insects 
Certain weather patterns cause death to the entire crop. Regardless of the creation of the UN, NATO, or the G7, or the G20, war intention will occur. It's a time of war and a time of peace. Doesn't matter how many live aids you do or wood stocks you put on, people will have hate people. Doesn't matter how many precautions you install, things will be lost. Doesn't matter how hard you work, you can't prevent the drop in the stock market, bad financial decisions from being made, losses in revenue to occur, change in leadership, budget cuts to be initiated, and jobs from being lost. You can't prevent it. There's nothing you can do. Therefore, the section of Ecclesiastes is not a break for optimism, but a con continuation of what he said before. All is vanity. Everything is chasing after the wind. God's order is a reason for despair. Here, here's why, I, this, this is why this is so. Verse 9. He doesn't say, doesn't, he doesn't say, how wonderful is God's order, does he? What does he say? What gain has the worker from his toil? He asked this question and then observing everything under heaven and saying there's a time for every matter. And he goes, what point is there to work? What point, what profit do I get from my toil? From whatever I do, it doesn't matter. God's sovereignty will counteract those things. He even says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1 verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil of which he toils under the sun? All is vanity, all is meaningless, life is completely meaningless. Ecclesiastes 12, 8, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. It's his conclusion. The teacher believes that human life is full of despair and nothing matters. There is no but or however here. The teacher has no Jeremiah 29, 11 at the end of verse 8. He does not have a Philippians 4, 13, does he? There is no sweet conclusion to the story like in Job, is there? When everything ends okay, there isn't that here, is there? He doesn't say, but, he says, what good is the toil? The teacher questions the goodness of God. I think you have to catch this here, that this is in the Bible, it's inspired by God, and it's a person who is in despair because of God's sovereignty. Important to recognize, these words are inspired by God, yet the words are placed in the mouth of a frustrated and hopeless soul. I was going to read, uh, for you philosophy lovers, I was going to read some Nietzsche for a little bit, but I don't have that time. But Nietzsche, in his book, The Gay Science, writes about the madman. And what does the madman say? God is dead. We've killed him. And the conclusion of that fact is life is meaningless. Because God has been killed by science, by rationalism, by the enlightenment. We don't need God. And the consequences of not needing God is that nothing is, has any meaning. Nietzsche is not happy with the fact that he believes God's dead. It leads him to despair. Love, music, art, work, nothing matters. I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man, he says in verse 10, to be busy with. And what is that business? He says in Ecclesiastes 1.13, it's an unhappy business that God has given to man. It's not a good business. It's not a joyful business. It's not a happy business. It's an unhappy business. Unhappy business, because nothing matters, therefore there's no profit to be gained from our toil. What is interesting, and we think about Genesis chapter 2, so it's what did God do to Adam and Eve? He puts them in the garden to do what? To work and keep the land. And that was to be a happy business. 
to be multiplied, to be fruitful, to expand God's Eden. That was a happy business. But what happens in chapter 3 of Genesis? Because of Adam and Eve's sin, God curses the ground, thorn and thistles, will be the fruit of their labor and sweat of their face will be the consequence of their hard work. And what does he say at the end of it? Till you return to the ground on which you came from. That is the consequences of sin that has created a fallen world, and therefore our work is not a happy labor. And the preacher and the teacher has a problem with that. The business of working and keeping the land is cursed and will yield thorns and vessels by the sweet of their brow. After you have done this for your entire life, you return to the dust from which you, are, you yourself are. You are dust, and you return to the dust. This is the curse of sin. There is no human solution for overcoming God's sentence for sin. That's why I read Romans 8, 19-23. We're subject, creation is subject to futility. There's a bondage that creation is in because of sin. And creation, we ourselves are part of creation. We groan. This is someone groaning. The preacher and the teacher is groaning. He is groaning because he doesn't like the world. Because of its fallen nature. And that God is sovereign over it. There's nothing we can do to change it. Uh, I was talking to my grandfather yesterday about uh, Malaysian Air. I don't know if you remember this, about a few years ago, uh, Malaysian Air 370. Uh, it disappeared in like 2014. And they couldn't find it. I mean, literally, they still have yet to find this plane. And I read this article about it. And I'm not going to talk about all the details, but what I found it interesting is that the Malaysian government hired an Australian company to, who are specialized in underwater like searching to, to try to find the plane. And after three years, three years, $160 million later, they found nothing. These are the pros of the pros, right? They use uh, oceanic drifting and radar and all this technical battle stuff, and they couldn't find the plane. Think about working for three years with a project, and you have nothing to show. Talk about toil and unhappy business. What good comes from our toil? Who has made everything beautiful in his time? Verse 11. God created all things good. So this is chapter 1, right? God created all things good. He says, very good. If this verse followed 1.8, then we would interpret the goodness of God's creation and govern all things. Yet the teacher follows 1 through 8 with verse 9. What gain has the worker from his toil? In this verse, the teacher is frustrated with God's governance. He has put eternity into man's heart, he says in verse 11, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. The teacher views God's creation of man, placing eternity into his heart, as an action of a mocker. God is trying to ploy with us. He's trying to mock with us. He is not good. Why would he give us eternity into our hearts if we couldn't actually find out what God does in eternity? We can't even understand what he does in the future. We don't even know why he does things in the present. We have no idea. There's no way for us to understand. He has veiled our minds and veiled our hearts. He's put eternity in our hearts, and we can't even know what eternity is. He's frustrated. Why does God do what he does? Why is there a time of birth and a time of death? Why does he allow people to be killed? Why would an almighty and loving God allow bad things to happen in this universe? Have you ever heard these questions before? This is what the teacher and the preacher is saying. Why does God allow bad things to happen in his creation? That's what the teacher and preacher is saying. It doesn't matter if you're righteous. 
do everything right, or wicked, do everything morally wrong, you're not immune to a time for every matter under heaven. Now, let me use one for example. Proverbs 22.6. Train your child in the ways of the Lord, and he shall go even when he is old, and he will not depart from you. Unfortunately, there's exceptions to that rule. And it's actually in the Bible. Who, two judges from the Bible, Eli and Samuel, raised children who walked away from the Lord. So there's exceptions in you and others who may have children who walk away from everything you teach them and say to them, will say, I don't want anything to do with your God. I don't want anything to do with your church. I don't want anything to do with Christ. I'm walking away. And you are not a failure to keeping this passage. The problem is, is that we live in a world that's fallen, and there's a time in this world where people walk away from the faith. There's exceptions to the rule. There's frustration of the teacher. It leads him to question the value of work. leads him ultimately to question the goodness of God. The Bible is giving us a window into the heart of the common man. But out of love for God, he is in despair. He sees nothing of worth. He desires to know the mysteries of the universe, but his mind is veiled. Why are we here? What is my destiny? The answer is hidden from him. He doesn't know. I was reading this week that stores, that department stores like uh, uh, Saks Fifth Avenue, Sears, Lord's Taylor, all these businesses are going out of, all these departments are going out of business. All of them. You, look, you like 50, 60 years ago, these man, these companies were booming, man. People were going to their stores, buying their stuff. All these people were, were spending money at all these department stores. That's why you see department stores everywhere. Now what's happening? Everyone's buying stuff on Amazon. No one's buying stuff at department stores. Nobody's going to, to, to uh, no one's driving up to New York to go to Saks Fifth Avenue. They just buy it on Amazon, right? No one thought this was going to happen 30, 40 years ago. No one thought of Amazon. It was going to be online. You're going to shop on a computer? What? You're going to shop on the phones? There's a time where businesses go out of business. There's nothing we can do to stop it. There's nothing we can do to control it. Things happen because of God's sovereignty and his will. Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. To the heart of the one who does not love God, these verses lead to hatred. Hatred. What do you mean? Your ways are your ways, and your thoughts are your thoughts. God says in Job 41.11, Who has given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole earth is mine. No one likes that verse if you don't believe in God. You hate those passages. You want him gone forever. He has mocked us by putting eternity into our hearts, and then left us in ignorance about why, how, what, and when he allows time for every matter under heaven. May that guy die. Nothing we do can overcome him. All our wisdom, wealth, work have no power over God. Nothing matters how much I exercise and eat right. I will eventually get old and die. Doesn't matter how much work I do, how loyal I am to my company. They say they may still lay me off to the time of breaking down. We don't know always why it happens. We know God is in control of it. The world has fallen. The world has been subject to fertility. We groan with creation and our desperation for hope. The teacher wants hope, but there is no answer to his desperation. In pleasure, wealth, wisdom, or toil, they are all empty of hope. Therefore, the teacher views God as hard and unloving. He views God as hard and unloving. I perceive that whatever God has done endures forever. Nothing can be added to it. Nothing can be taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. 
No matter how frustrating this world, the time of birth, the time of death, there is no path of change. We cannot escape the pain of the curse of the fall in the garden. We cannot escape from God's sovereign control. The teacher is convinced the regular actions of God is to force us into submission. There's no hope of relief from him. There's no relief from God. The only consolation, the teacher says, is to settle for the pleasures of the present, right? To just enjoy what you eat, enjoy what you drink, enjoy what you do. Right? That's pretty much his conclusion. It's almost like, well, if this is all to be true, then the consolation is just to enjoy the present. The teacher's in despair, and he sees no relief, no hope. Verse 16, number three, you never want to meet your hero. You never want to meet your hero. I don't know about you, but as a boy grew up in Tennessee, Peyton Manning was my hero. And he was a man. I don't know if I want to meet him, because he almost stays like in that sphere of perfection, right? He's purely perfect. There's no wrong in Peyton Manning's heart and mind. He's the perfection of all humanity. And if you meet him, you realize actually he's not. Right? You just like get disappointed when you meet your heroes. I don't know if you've met like your baseball hero, but then sometimes like it's really great, but then a lot of times it's just not as cool, like because they're just normal people, right? I don't know if, if that's true. I don't know about you've written Indiana boys and girls, what your hero was. I know maybe it's Larry Bird. Maybe for you Kentucky people, it's a horse of some sort. Maybe that's your hero. <laughs> horse racing and junk. But uh, to this, yeah, Colonel Sanders, maybe. Um, but you never really want to meet your hero because your hero is perfect in your mind and heart. Once you meet them, you become disappointed. You know, something happened this week. I mean, let me just read this first. In verse 16, the, the, he kind of changes gears here and he says, It's all under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. Basically, he's saying, In the place of justice, injustice was there. In the place of righteousness, injustice was there too. There's this, I read an article this week, and I wrote about it, and we posted it on the blog at, for the church about Martin Luther King Jr. I don't know if you read it recently, but it came out that he had over 40 affairs with other women. He was involved in group uh, sex acts. He actually watched a woman get raped by one of the guys that worked with him. He was laughing because he was drunk. And... Um, I mean, that came out. Like, there, there was rumors that this thing, these things were true, but now it's been published, and now it's kind of become common fact that while he was a man of the civil rights movement, he was a man full of flaws. And basically, people you think are perfect and pure are not perfect. And the writer here, the preacher, is saying, even when I saw that there would be justice there in that place, in that context, there's not justice there, there's injustice. Even there's a lot of going nuts over the Southern Baptist Convention, but it was found out that a lot of churches, especially in Houston and other places, had people on staff or on or volunteers that committed sexual abuse acts. And people are like in arms because they're so surprised that of all places, those churches should be perfect and pure. And they're not. And we say, even there, there's places of injustice. What hope do we have? No one can be trusted, right? No one is what it seems. You know, when I was uh, working with the Republican Party, I met some like state politicians, and I, I kind of like the boys. I think I mean, all oh, these people are like, we're talking about policies with them. It's perfect. I had this idealistic viewpoint, and you know what? 
they're just dirty politicians. Places are discredited and compromised. Governance, governments can't be trusted. Remember Watergate? Schools can't be trusted. Evolution, sex and education. Churches can't be trusted. Abuse of money and the fidelities. Justice systems can't be trusted. Mandatory minimums, high in in incarceration rates. Businesses can't be trusted. Enron, cigarette corporations. You know, this goes on and on. There's no beacon of hope. There's no city on a hill. All our, hero, all our heroes have become emperors without clothes. There's injustice where we think there should be justice. And the preacher and the teacher is, is frustrated. He is frustrated. He ends this, this passage with death. With death. And I entitled this Death and Taxes. He said in my heart, this is verse 17 and 18, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every man and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them. They may see that they themselves are but beasts. The teacher believes that God will possibly judge the wicked and vindicate the righteous. God will set things right. The ways of justice are not apparent. But obviously, God's going to fix this in the end. So he has this internal dialogue with himself. I said to myself, in my heart, I asked myself, Thinking, reflecting, he starts to reflect on death, and he concludes that humans are no different than animals. Our fatal ends are such alike. He even says in chapter 2, it's a matter if you're wise or a fool, the same result happens, you die. It's interesting in Exodus 11, what happens when the tenth plague, when all of the firstborn of Egypt were dead? Who else died? The animals, the cattle. Firstborn, the rich, the poor, the cattle, all died at the same time, same fate. What happens to the children of man, what happens to the beast is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast. For all is vanity, all go to one place, and all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Every breathing creature dies. Yet the teacher and the preacher has come to believe that both man and the beast have no future destiny. Man is born, beast is born. Man lives, beast lives. Man dies, beast dies. The end. He's not faithful enough, he's not confident enough that there's an afterlife, and he's just like, well, this is it then, I guess. Man has no advantage over the beast. Nothing can prevent this troublesome end. Wealth, wisdom, pleasure, work, even righteous deeds do not matter. All is vanity. He concludes. In the end, you die in your own arms. It's a big nothing. This is a quote from a TV show. All is a big nothing. Both come from the dust and both will return to it, to dust. You think of like Elvis Presley? There was a picture this week that there was a picture of his grandson, Benjamin, who looks just like him. Do you know that he died when he was 42 years old? 42. How much more music would he have, would have he recorded, right? I mean, 42. And he's got like what, 15? I don't know how old John, Johnny Cash was before he died. But years and years. And it says in his life that Elvis actually recorded 665 songs. His death is no different than an animal or a pet or a horse or a cow. They both die. They both The reader reflects on this fact and he cries out in all his vanity. Death spreads to all men because of sin, Romans 5.12. Death is the great equalizer. The poorest of poor, the richest of the rich, both die. The weakest of the weak, the strongest of the strong, both die. 
What is the point of anything? Nothing lasts. Death cannot be beaten. It ruins everything. He ends and says, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward or the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth? The teacher is uncertain of life after death. He is frustrated by the unknowability of the afterlife. Do we live on? God placed eternity into our hearts, but we can't know with certainty if we live on to eternity after death. Is this life of birth and death all that there is? If this is all that there is, if there's no hope of justice and vindication, the righteous and the wicked receive the same fate, both return to the dust like beasts. This is the viewpoint and the thoughts of the mind and the heart of a person that you may know who does not have God. He says, so that Saul, there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, but this is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after himself? Since justice can't be found in the present and the future, take advantage of the present in fleeting moments of pleasure. There's nothing more to live for. I don't believe the teacher is getting good advice here. I don't think you read this and go, okay, I will just focus on the present and I will enjoy the pleasures of the next. Application of please chapter three. I don't think that's the truth. I don't think he's presenting good advice. There, we have no advantage in this world. Death comes for everything. The world of God is flawed. God is a cosmic bully. God, you stink. And you world that you created and you trapped us in. That's not what is true. You have two choices in life. You can despair or you can have hope in a meaningless world. This is an example of the hopelessness of the common man without Christ. Go back to Romans 8, 18 through 24. <coughs> How does it end? While we groan, while we look forward for the Revealing of the Son of Man, as we look forward to uh, getting freed from the bondage of fertility, we hope in the, rest, in the redemption of our bodies. We hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Those who have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and his resurrection have a certain hope of their own redemption. Our faith is not the same as peace. We shall be risen to newness and in life. We are united in Christ's resurrection. Christ's resurrection raises the world from despair. Christ lives. Christ living frees us from despair. If he stays in the tomb, we are in despair. Because he was risen from the dead and he lives, we have hope. Christ defeated death. O oh, death, where is your sting? Christ has overcome you. Therefore, we have overcome death. We can bring him to see what will be after him. Look to Christ, right? Look to him. That just tells you what life is after death. The one who conquered the power of death has set us free to live. If you do not have Christ, there is no hope for you. There is no hope for your coworker. There's no hope for your family member. There's no hope for your friends. There is no hope. There's no hope in wealth. There's no hope in wisdom. There is no hope without Christ. That's what this passage is about. It's telling you that everything in this world of the sun gives you no hope but the one who conquered death. Francis Schaeffer, who is my favorite, apologies. He writes in one of his chapters in God Who Is There, The Dilemma of Man. He writes, because man, whether somehow created by a curious thing called God, or kicked up out of a slip slime by chance, has always been in this dilemma. The dilemma is part of what being man is, and it's the dilemma of despair. 
Is there any meaning in life? Ecclesiastes is an apologetic book. It presents a point of tension. It presents a dilemma. Without Christ, life is meaningless. Schaefer wrote that humans want to live in a world that God created and Christ redeemed without believing any of the truth to be the truth to be told true. Without God and Christ, the world is meaningless and everything they love and hold dear are meaningless. They shelter themselves with the logical conclusions of a world without Christ. Yet, helping people to realize the meaningless of their world and life submerges them in despair. We want people to be in despair. Why? Because we realize that all the things in this world do not bring hope and don't look to Christ. So we want people to have a point of tension. Ubi was right last week. This book has to do with evangelism and discipleship. We want those who do not know Christ to have an existential crisis like the teacher here. To be submerged under the terror, under the vanity of a world without Christ's redemption and hope. We want people there. We don't want to tell them, it's all going to be okay. Right? You've got intelligence. You've got money. You've got a wonderful husband or wife. You've got great kids. You're going to be okay. When the whole time, the reason why they're not okay is they don't have Christ. And we tell them it's going to be okay. We're lying to them. We're lying to them. You know that it's not going to be okay without Christ. We want people to be at that point where like, Everything that I do, everything that I say, everything that I believe in is meaningless. And then we tell them about Christ. There is a, um, a university student from Cambridge that was talking to Schaefer about this. And he basically concluded that if what I believe is true, that if there is no God, then the logical conclusion of my life is that it's meaningless. And Schaefer says, correct. And then tells him about Christ. We must never forget that the first point of the part of the gospel is not accept Christ as Savior, but God is there. And only then are we ready to hear God's solution for man's moral dilemma in the subsidiary work of Christ in history. If you don't, someone has to believe that they are, their life is meaningless and they are under God's wrath, then Christ as Savior means nothing. I want to encourage y'all, kind of to end here, to take part in the Thursday growth groups if you can. Because we're talking about evangelism. And one of the things that Stan talked about on Thursday was the four things that people need to hear to give the gospel. That God is there. That he created. That he is more. That we as man have sinned. And we are in a fallen world. And the, and the, the consequence of our sin is death. And if death is true, if, if death is our sentence, then nothing in this world matters. And the only solution, the only hope we have is Christ. Without Christ's death and resurrection and our faith in Christ... Our lives are meaningless. And we have to respond to that and those truth in faith and repentance. And I want to just encourage you, that's what the gospel is. It's not, well, Jesus is Lord and then in there. It's that God is there. You are a sinner who needs salvation. There's salvation in Christ. And put your faith and trust in Him. If you do not say that to someone, if you don't believe that, then you are not a Christian. If you don't believe that you're a sinner in need of grace, you are not a Christian. I don't care if you come to church. I don't care if you have a Jesus necklace around your neck. I don't care if you carry a Bible that doesn't make you a Christian. If you don't believe you're a sinner in despair without Christ, you do not have Christ. And if you know friends and family and coworkers who believe that they're a Christian just because they go to church or have a necklace around their neck or they go to Bible, they listen to Caleb, you are lying to them. They're not telling them. Faith in Christ 
comes a realization that you are in total despair and your life is meaningless without Christ. To communicate those things and pray that those people in your heart that you want to come to know Jesus will come to a point of tension, like the preacher and the teacher. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you how challenging it is. Your word is challenging. It's difficult at times, Lord. It's surprising that this chapter is in the Bible. But what you're doing, Lord, is you're giving us a window to the heart of the common man. That one who is not in Christ, this is the cry of their soul. This is the cry of their heart. And Lord, maybe they are clouding it and veiling that with money and work and pleasure and indulgences of different sorts. But pray, Lord, that if that people would come to a point of tension, that all of those things are meaningless. They have meaning. Death is unavoidable. Death is the great equalizer. And it ruins everything. As the, the teacher is saying, all the wealth that we've built up, all the accomplishments we've built up, when we die, it just gives to someone else that even work for. There's nothing we can do to change that cycle. There's nothing we can do. Time and everything that happens under the other heaven will happen. And if we stay in this constant struggle, Lord, and frustration, we will lead to this point of despair and terror. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that in those moments of despair and realization, the gospel will come in and give people hope. And I pray, Lord, that if that's where you are, I pray that the people in this room, if that's where you are, that you will press in Christ. If you know people that are at that point, that you will be there to share Christ with them. If you know someone who's not at that point yet, that you would pray that they would come to that point, that they would give their lives to Christ. Lord, we love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name. I can get Dick and Sean to come forward. We're going to take uh, Lord's Supper together. Um, two different things. Uh, if you ever continue to redeem if you're new. Uh, this is for believers in Jesus Christ. And so if you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, we want to encourage you, uh, and you're welcome to have.